0: Doubts endure over this summer's Olympic Games in Tokyo. Civics and lockdown as protests turn violent in the Netherlands. And Boom Boom Tam Tam, a hit in Brazil, but what's it about? Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on The Late Edition, here on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Late Edition on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards, joined here in Studio One of Midori House by Monocle's editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck hello and from his soho bolt hole it says here by fernando augusto pacheco hello fernando
1: hello bon dia, tom <laughs>
0: um now headline news uh, here in the uk besides of course ongoing doom and gloom is snow and there's been lots of it uh, andrew tuck um i don't know are you a, a, a sort of head straight for parliament hill on your sled what about macy the dog does she love a gamble in the snow Well, it was perfectly
2: timed, actually, because uh, I do the show on a Sunday morning with Tyler, and uh, just as I was looking out the window at the end, it began to snow, which is the time that the dog is kind of like anxiously looking for a walk. So we went to Regent's Park, and it's magical snow, isn't it? It's so strange how it changes how you feel. I think there's something about the way it filters light immediately. There's this different kind of light. But the dog, uh, Fox Terrier, I must have spoken about my dog about a million times. (laughs) I presume everyone almost knows, but... She goes mad for it. She, as soon as she's on that snow, she runs around in circles. She's eating it. She's <laughs> so excited, which makes you very happy as well. So yes, it was it was slightly joyful, but just a shame that it, it was it was in central London. It, it came and it went in a in a morning almost.
0: Yeah, uh, and Fernando. What about you? You're you're sort of under lock and key, aren't you? Were you building quarantine snowmen on the in, on your balcony in Soho, or did you did you just look wistfully out of the window?
1: I've got to be honest, Tom. You know, as soon as it started to snow, I, I went actually outside to my balcony. So don't worry, I'm still inside my flat and, and, and I agree with Andrew. It's just magical. And, and Tom, even though I've been living here in Europe for more than 10 years now, for me, it's still, there's something quite exotic about it. Uh, and so I even, you know, I even put my best kind of winter coat. I took a, a picture outside as well. I love snow. You know, it was very nice coming back from Brazil and having at least something to, to, to see from my window as well.
0: Yeah, very different from Sao Paulo, I'm guessing. Uh, Let's uh, on with the show then. And we begin in Japan, of course. The world eagerly awaits any kind of positive change, pandemic-wise. But the situation maybe has greater urgency in Japan. Uh, The country is looking ahead to this summer's already once rescheduled Olympic Games. Reports last week suggested the government was preparing to cancel the event, already postponed this summer. Earlier, we spoke to Fiona Wilson, Monocle's Tokyo bureau chief, who explained more about what exactly is going on. There were reports at the end of the week that, you know, the games privately, the government had concluded that the games couldn't happen. It was too difficult. And they were just trying to find a way, a sort of safe facing way of of exiting the games. And really, it's proved very, very difficult. But the government came out very strongly and said, no, no, the games are going ahead. The governor of Tokyo said the same thing. But I think everyone here is remembering that last year, just moments before the Games were postponed, the government was saying it's inconceivable that the Games would be postponed. So I think these statements from the government in response to the reports that the Games are going to be cancelled are not necessarily to be held. Fiona Wilson talking to us earlier from... Tokyo, Andrew. Look, this is a difficult uh, situation for the government in, in Japan to uh, manage. Of course, um, plenty of proposed solutions around are spectatorless games, but these would, of course, cost the country a huge amount of, of money in tourism revenue, and would be difficult for them because they've made it a big issue that they'll, you know, we can still help this great event to to continue. But a lot of the polling of the public suggests that people, frankly, aren't that fast, and they just favour a, a cancellation. Should the government be insisting that the Games go ahead, even if they maybe know or suspect or fear to the contrary?
2: Well, public opinion is a slightly complicated thing in this instance, because here in the UK, even when there was no pandemic around, we were on the cusp of having the Games. There was a sense in London and the rest of the country that people didn't want it. They, they, they thought it was a waste of money and, and to hell with it. And then the minute it started, everybody was so enthused by it. And everyone wanted to go and everyone was fighting to get tickets suddenly. You saw that these events—they—they—they they, they have an impact when they happen, and they really do change the mood in a city. So. If they could go ahead, I think that the public would would swing behind it in the last moment. So in a way, not to say ignore public opinion, but I don't think that should be the guiding thing, is whether they can go ahead in a safe way with a large number of competitors doing their best. Now, we're watching what's happening as the Australian Open goes ahead and you hear you have a small number of sports people coming in with, with smaller entourages and it's been difficult and from afar it looks a bit kind of, not fun for the athletes who are locked up and then lose some of their peak performance ability. So if you're doing that on the scale of thousands of people going into Japan, then it's very difficult unless you had like some complicated thing where everyone was given a vaccine, they had to show a vaccine certificate, and they were kept in quarantine before they arrived. And then as you say, maybe you'd only allow Japanese people to go along as spectators. So it's it's possible that a slimmed down games could even now happen but when you look at all the other global events you know that are being pushed you know already people are cancelling stuff in june july august mm. is it's, it's kind of october seems to be the first time that anyone's reasonably confident of anything actually really happening i don't know it, it, it looks like this year is slowly being written off by people so to organize something on this scale i think it seems increasingly concerning. I hope it happens, but it, I, I think it, it's, it's
0: very touch-and-go. It looks a bit of a tall order. And Fernando, it's funny, isn't it? I guess if we look at that idea of you know the tone of the moment, part of what the Olympic Games is about, it's a global event, isn't it? It's people coming together, literally and metaphorically, and it's a celebration of great athletic prowess, but it's also a celebration of human achievement, endeavour, and all of those things kind of feel a bit, well, almost tone-deaf or out of step with the reality that most people are encountering at the moment. It clearly means a great deal for japan as the host they've already had to weather this one delay but does the olympic games for you feel like the right thing but at the wrong moment at the moment
1: well tom deep inside i kind of i hope the the olympics will happen this year and you know even though you know i agree with you the moment we're living is very difficult 2021 it's proving to be you know Quite a difficult start. But I think an event like this would bring so much joy to the world as well. But I don't want to sound glib here. Of course, you know, it's up to the Japanese government. You know, I think perhaps it's still a bit early to say, but I think by around March or April, I mean, we need to have an idea if this is going ahead or not. Uh, But, you know, and even as Andrew was saying, this is quite normal, actually, before an event like this, uh, that people are against it. Of course, this year is because of coronavirus, but, you know, in London, it's because of, you know, the the amount of money we're spending. I remember in Rio as well, there was quite a negative backlash before, but this year, I know it's a different situation, Uh, you know, But I think there's still a little bit of hope, and I think that's why perhaps the Japanese government is saying that it is going ahead no matter what, of course I'm skeptical, but I do love the Olympics. My God, I think, I think everyone would be so happy to be watching, you know, synchronised swimming or something for a bit, you know, to, to forget about, you know, everything that's happening in the world as well.
0: I might even watch synchronised swimming. Normally, that <laughs> wouldn't be top of my viewing list. But any, any, anything, and as you say, Faye, it's, it's something that we can all cling on to, I guess, for, for the time being at least. Uh, let's move along, though, now to the Netherlands. Over this past weekend, uh, it was a site of serious and in some cases violent anti-lockdown protests. Police deployed water cannon in a bid to disperse protesters in the cities of Amsterdam and Eindhoven. The catalyst for the protest was nominally the introduction of a curfew designed to curb the spread of Covid in the country. Well, earlier, Hans van der Beek, a journalist at Het Parool, offered this assessment on those who were present at yesterday's riot in Amsterdam.
1: They don't represent a whole lot of people. There are a lot of people who resent the measures and
0: a lot of people who don't want the curfew and they think uh, COVID is just the flu, etc. That are not the same people, the youngsters, the young men with hoodies and sunglasses who came there to riot. That is a difference. Also, people who who, uh, condemn these strong measures against uh, the COVID condemn all the violence in Eindhoven or, uh, or the rioting in, in, in the streets in, uh, of Amsterdam. Uh, let, let's hope it, it, it's a small group. But you only need a small group. Uh, the police arrested 100 people yesterday. It takes not more than 100 people to start uh, throwing stones to the police and running around. That's Hans van der Beek there talking to Monocle a little earlier. Andrew, clearly, and and Hans actually spoke in more detail about this on the briefing earlier today, that the protest was spearheaded by a small number of hooligans, perhaps looking for an excuse to cause some mischief, turn over a few tables, um, get into a contretemps with the police. but nevertheless, as Hans also went on to say, this is a curfew the first imposed in the country since World War II, and it's very unpopular. And whilst it's a platitude, obviously to say you know fatigue has set in with measures and, and, and countermeasures, I do wonder, are we at a point now where a gulf between the authorities and individuals or the wider public is widening to a, to a level that makes now, even to continue as we are, more difficult in more markets?
2: Well, I think it's striking that there's not been more outbursts because you know you're, you're talking to coming up to an, an anniversary, a full year of, of the, these lockdown measures on and off in most European countries in the US. Now, what that means in practical terms is that many people have lost a year of their lives in, in a very real sense. They've lost careers. They've uh, lost the opportunities to see their friends and families. Have lost the opportunity to perhaps go home if their their roots are in, uh, in another country to go and see those, those parts of their family. So it's been stressful. Um, it, it's pushed people into into debt, into poverty, and they've meanwhile watched their children lose their life chances through education being stripped away. The strange thing is how many people still sit quietly and just wait, and, and I think that is, that is incredible. On on Friday, I have a couple of friends who live in Palma de Mallorca and and both uh, independently mentioned to me that there'd been demonstrations in Palma. These weren't by thugs. These were, it seems, by hotel workers, mostly hospitality workers. There doesn't seem to be any fringe political groups involved with this. And here you see the frustration of poverty at people's front door, getting people out onto the street to demonstrate. The issue is that in, in in most instances there was a bit of a, a relaxation around the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, but otherwise, in most countries, people haven't allowed demonstrations to go ahead. So you you risk being arrested. So it's very difficult to go out and demonstrate. It's very difficult to make your voice heard. And the other funny thing is, I don't know, are people just exhausted? But actually, there's very, I don't know here in the UK, there's very little argument. It feels on the left or on the centre about okay this this is wrong, we must do something about it. But I do sense, you know, a little bit of kind of, you know, ennui, a little bit of kind of uh, fatigue that people, they keep on being offered these the, these moments when the sun's going to suddenly appear again. You know, it's going to be mid-February. And then we, just as we begin to move towards mid-February, now they're saying here in the UK, well, actually, maybe it's going to be Easter and then these stories which i presume have some some government spin in the background suggesting it could be july that you finally open restaurants and then I mean, if you if you've pushed education back to easter then does it suddenly drift to july and then you're you're talking that, that you know here in the uk the the educational year begins in september it's uh, a strange thing so i think there if you keep on doing this something will boil over because you know it's hard to say to a young generation you know and don't forget here in the in the uk the rules are on on social mixing you know, that if you want to date and you're single you shouldn't be allowed to have somebody from another household in your house unless they're part of your support bubble so effectively you're telling, saying to like 20 year olds you know don't have a sex life don't go to a club don't go to a bar uh, maybe you could go for a walk with somebody every now and then yes your education may have collapsed we may have no job for you but just put up with it and and we won't tell you we won't even give you any hint when this may be over then then i think you know maybe these these thugs at the weekend were not representative of many dutch people but there will i think be some boiling over of tension unless People begin to be given a path out of this thing. And every time you're given it, it, it's torn up and taken away from people. So I think there will be more frustration, especially when you see the the kinds of small demonstrations in, in Spain in, in recent weeks, which are definitely frustration at the lack of opportunities around work.
0: Uh, and Fernando, let me ask you, it's really interesting, isn't it? Clearly, if there's violence at these sorts of demonstrations, that can discredit legitimate protesters who are trying to make a, po- a point uh, in a non-violent way. Nevertheless, I wonder: Do, do you think that um, Andrew's right, and that actually it is surprising that we've seen that we haven't seen more of this kind of thing? I mean, and obviously you were in Brazil for a, about a month over the Christmas and New Year period. Is it very different there, the dynamic? Do you think that there are social differences? Is there a different understanding of civics and civic responsibility in different markets that maybe mean that people's dissatisfaction manifests itself in a different way, depending on where in the world you are?
1: And and Tom, yes, there's there definitely is a difference I mean, the life I was living in Brazil is very different from the one here in the UK In Brazil, is much less restrictive But one thing that I see in common, actually, with both Brazil and the UK is I mean, of course, we're in a pandemic, you know As you know, I'm talking to you from my flat because I have to quarantine for 10 days I personally, you know, I don't resent that But at the same time, what we see is that I f- I see a lot of kind of privileged people, you know, kind of being very judgmental of of others. Like I, even in Brazil, uh, a lot of people who I know they have a nice house to live, they were like, oh, look at those people out in the streets. And sometimes they're just kind of workers because, you know, they have no rights, you know, because we're talking about... You know, people that have perhaps not so much job protections as we have in Europe. So I think people need to be also nicer as well. Uh, That's something that, that I've noticed. And I think it happens here in the UK as well. People judging, oh my God, how can you fly? I know, for example... Uh, not not me personally, but I know people that you know they have to fly it because they have someone seriously ill that lives you know uh, across the ocean. So you know I think we we do need to respect the rules of you know of COVID nineteen. Of course, you know I know it's a very serious situation, and even governments don't know exactly what to do. But perhaps it's it's time for us to be a little bit less uh, judgmental, if you know what I mean.
0: Absolutely, and Andrew, just on this point about. You know, civics and civil society. We always talk about this thing. We bandy these kind of phrases around. Do you think that the experience of this, who knows how long it's going to last, will prompt, uh, I don't know, a a review of how people are, you know, even in early years, taught about what it means to be a citizen, a responsible citizen, and indeed the counterpoint, what is acceptable to demand of the state in terms of its behaviour and the way that it seeks to keep the collective society safe. I mean, I don't ever really remember learning about my civil responsibilities in any kind of meaningful, structured way. Um, I think a lot of it is trusted to happen almost by sort of osmosis from living in, in society. But do you think that... I mean, looking for silver linings, but could there be a review of how we consider our role in society as one potential positive after all of this horror?
2: I don't know. I, I get the feeling that... First of all, people are very good at following rules. So if you're, they're given rules in each country, they, they, people go along with what they're told to do. So you know, here in the UK, I don't. You know, you can be confused by some of the headlines that you see and some of the things that ministers say because you, you would take away from that that you know raves were going on every single night that you know everyone was tempted to have a huge house party. Yeah, you know, I don't see evidence of that in the neighbourhoods where I live in the in the centre of the city. Of course, there have been incidents. But I think they're very rare. So I think maybe we're not being invited, Andrew. No, no, but I think that sense (laughs) of civic duty is kind of there already. I remember years and years ago being told the story, which is a thing to do with sociology, which is like, you know how people judge each other and that you know what what's deemed bad behavior so that even if you live in a society where everybody kind of goes along with every rule for example i don't know if you're living in a nunnery where everyone's pretty much following the rules even on you know silence but when one person speaks you know suddenly when there's meant to be an, an order of silence they're seen as like you know the devil and i think that's what's happening in our society here that everybody's being very well behaved very compliant but then you see these people be turned on and and this is the the problem with it is like one tiny infringement of it you know somebody you know isn't wearing a mask on the street which you're not meant to do here but someone else thinks they sh- you should be they get angry about it so i think that we've got we've got so tight on these rules i worry about saying it's civil duty i think people are pretty good at doing it but you have to give people around the fringes of this some ability to do their best, and people are, not, are going to fail they're not always going to live up to other people's expectations. so I don't know I don't think there's too many rules I think on the whole it's turned out that people are pretty good.
0: Uh, well, maybe let's uh, finish the program by heading back to Brazil. Fernanda's mentioned it a couple of times um, and let's take a listen to something that I don't know may help in some of this uh, narrative. Have a listen to this. ela.
1: <laughs> no 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 no
0: Uh <laughs> Fernando explain what have we been hearing?
1: Well, you've just heard there a song called "Boom Boom Tantan, but this is not the original one, Tone. So, just for those who don't know, this song has been a massive hit in Brazil three years ago. There's like one point five billion views on social media, and to be honest, Tone, it is about booty shaking. That's that's no escape from that. It is shake your booty and everything. But uh, as you know, uh, the first vaccine approved in Brazil was by Instituto Butantan, not Boom Boom Tantan, but Butantan but very similar, Um, and when the vaccine has been approved, this song returned everywhere in Brazil. It became a viral song again. And the singer, you know, he was very sweet, I have to say, because he re-recorded the track, and, and of course, now he's not talking about booties, but he's talking about the, you know, the scientific institute. And he decided to record a video there. So uh, in the video, which is very sweet, I recommend everyone to to, to watch it. Uh, basically, everybody's dancing and he's kind of saying this vaccine will shake your minds. I think everybody should be, should be vaccinated. And the song, of course, uh, this reworked song, became a hit again. And Tom, it's very funny because when I saw the video, I, I had a tear in my eye, actually. It's, uh, I, I think it was something quite, quite nice that he did it. Um, and, and it's a very Brazilian story. The first country that, you know, we have a, a booty shaking, a, a pro-vaccine booty shaking song. <laughs> well, well, I guess this is
0: the interesting point. Do, does a breakout sort of uh, cult uh, video or track like this mean actually you might get better uptake of vaccine? Andrew, it's funny, in this country, we spoke I think back in 2020 about, you know, the passing of Dame Vera Lynn and how you get these figures in music that can somehow capture the the zeitgeist, capture the mood of a nation and offer comfort to people, whether they're returning soldiers or citizens of the country. Come back to what we're talking about, you know, social fabric and all the rest. Do we sometimes miss opportunities to galvanise people with something as simple as a great piece of music or something that just offers a little... You know, a a bit of joy in in amongst all the gloom.
2: It'd be nice to have a a kind of a British version of that, wouldn't it? But (laughs) I don't know what it would be. I'm I'm not sure what what really rhymes with AstraZeneca. But anyway, (laughs) there must be something that kind of would get you through it. But yeah, how I don't know. These what you do want is is popular culture to be kind of in the vanguard of these things and encouraging people to get involved. And as a as a as a a serious point about this you know that we know that one of the big issues here in the in the UK and in many european countries is that many communities especially migrant communities uh, communities of color have been slower on the uptake around vaccines. So there, if there were musical stars who could connect with the younger, younger generation to persuade their grandparents to go and have the jab, then that would be good. So anything that popularises the storytelling around this and and, and connects uh, across all sorts of cultural lines, then it's amazing. And if that's going to be a, a song from Brazil that we can adapt, then let's go
0: for it. As long as I don't have to shake my skinny ass to the music will be fine <laughs> Fernando then so I think we've answered the question already with Boom Boom Tan, Tan but what, what about for you the soundtrack to the pandemic it seems like it, that does seem like a, almost a, an indelicate thing to ask but w- will it end up being this do you think is there something else that's got you through the gloomier moments
1: well besides Boom Boom Tan, Tan <laughs> of course uh, you, you know which artist on that I have to be honest I mean at the beginning of lockdown, she released, uh, of the first lockdown, she released her album. It's Dua Lipa. I mean, I think, it, and her album is very disco. And I think it's, it's, it's what everybody needed to hear at the time. Something a bit lighthearted, a bit catchy. And, you know, she's a British artist, but I was in Brazil. The radio was playing a lot of Dua Lipa. It was a mixture of Dua Lipa and Boom Boom Tam Tam.
0: That sounds pretty intoxicating. Andrew, what about you? Is it is it just the theme music to Call My Agent on Netflix? Is that the, the anthem for you of the uh, pandemic or something else?
2: Well, I, I just looked to see how many songs have got the, the word shot in it. So we've got uh, <laughs> Hit Me With Your Best Shot, a shot in the dark, I don't know if I particularly want it done in the dark, or one more shot, that, that could be played to encourage people to go and get their, their second vaccination, couldn't it? He shot me down, I don't, don't think that's going to help us anyway. Uh, <laughs> w- warning shots, you know, again, that would be quite useful. Hot shots, well, you, n- you never know what's going to happen to you. So I, I'm sure there's lots of songs
0: out there that we could kind of uh, turn into a bit of a, a motivational anthem. There we go. The the, uh, the challenge has been set. Uh, get in touch if you've got your own thoughts on what the uh, pandemic adherence to the controls anthem could be. Um, I think we should draw a line right there, though. For today's late edition, a big thanks to Andrew here in the studio, to Fernando Augusto Pacheco, just a mile or two away elsewhere in London, and to all our editors today and our studio managers, Steph Jingu and Sam Impey. I'm Tom Edwards here in London. Until next time, goodbye and thanks for listening.